left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. If you cash out today, you have your 10% penalty and you're paying taxes on it. So a lot of folks might say, well, I had a pretty good year working my W-2. I made 100K. I'm going to take out 250. Well, there's 25K. Guess what? Your AGI just went up to 350. Yeah. You got to kind of consider all that, especially if you're going to leave your W-2 and assume you have a, a big bucket of money to do something with. Because your final point I'll make on this, then you're losing the leverage of having a W-2. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Josh McCown from Capital Hacking, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field with Jim Pfeiffer. This is the most important thing you can listen to today. I'm very pleased today to have Dan Krizanowski with us. He is a capital raiser, equity owner, and LP investor generating double-digit yields and lower taxes via commercial real estate. He's also an advisory partner at BB Capital, a private equity company offering direct access to syndication investments. I am super proud of myself that I pronounced your name right. So, Dan, welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Awesome, Jim. Such a pleasure. Great to be with you all today. The first thing we usually do is I'd like just to hear your story. How did you get into real estate, passive investing, all of your financial journey? You know, simply like many folks on the call, I grew up in small town America, was W2'd for a while. So, uh, Happened to go to a name brand school. So it's on, I'd say, a pretty typical path, maxing out my 401k, quote unquote, doing the right thing per se. Oddly enough, about 15 years ago, we had our first taste of Austin. My wife in Mexico through GE Capital, I found my, myself here. And from here, I was doing, of all things, uh, airport real estate, which is actually pretty cool when you get down. You get to spin the globe, and that's literally your pipeline. So it made it a lot of fun. And what I realized from this experience is that, yeah, I mean, there's more than just being a typical 60-40 stock bond sort of investor. So this would be, I'd say, my first inclination that this world exists. 
Fast forward a few years later, I'm a co-best man in a wedding, coldest day of the year in Staten Island, coldest driest day, et cetera. The gentleman who I was co-best men with, he said, hey, Dan, what do you do? Vice versa. And he shared with me that he flips houses. I said, that's great. And then he said, 15%. I said, that's better. And then he said, did you know you can use your retirement dollars to invest in this? And that was, as they say, the light bulb moment. So that's kind of the kickoff for the past decade. In addition to doing the equivalent of what is now known as crowdfunding in bars and restaurants is what got me into the space. So you said you had your light bulb moment was when he said you could do it with your retirement account. Why was that the light bulb moment? You know, going full circle, I think, once again, I'm a simple kid growing up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, always with a head and heart for, I think, the little person. Being on Wall Street didn't make full sense for me. And especially trading, you know, ABC, XYZ, pick your ticker. This really didn't fit. And I know so many folks are just either blindly have the retirement there or their advisor, their guy, their gal has them in some strategy and they have no idea what it is and it's not impactful, particularly for the folks that with their liquid account, they're investing in a second house, a female entrepreneur, you name it. It's amazing, especially I have a bit of gray hair for us folks over 40. Retirement's not that far away, nor is when retirement's going to come due and we can take it out without penalty. So me being a little left brain and growing up in the finance space, I said, wow, this is tremendous. This is literally a trillion dollar opportunity. One way or another, this has been my mission for the past decade to uh, evangelize this message. Talk about that message then. Are you talking about just the 401k slash self-directed IRA space? Are you talking real estate? What's the message? It's a great question, Jim. I think twofold. One is, yes, definitely. I'd say any takeaway from here is for folks, both as investors or if you are doing your deals, remember that you, your family, those in your network can use your retirement dollars, your old 401k, your IRA to invest passively in deals. Want to make that you know sort of big and bold. And then otherwise, the way that I'm wired, I prefer something to be tangible in my community who I'm with. And I think a lot of folks feel that deep down inside and maybe have been misguided or frankly marketed a different way to think about their finances. Let's dive into the way you can use your retirement differently. Well, first of all, can you talk about the self-directed IRA versus maybe a solo 401k, what the differences are, what's better for the typical investor? And I know there's a lot of questions, but how do you figure out what investments should go in to your retirement and what investments are better off maybe outside of that qualified plan? First and foremost, the self-directed IRA legalized in the 1970s. Many actually politicians have it, just a side note, FYI. The most vanilla experience is somebody that has been W-2'd for a while or say you recently retired, you're on a new position, new company, you can tap into those old retirement dollars. Most likely you're going through a custodian. You know, when I hear that in my mind, it seems a little old, a little stodgy at times. But essentially, it's just another stop on your train where you're moving your money from your old company to call it a fidelity, a rollover IRA to a self-directed IRA. And then from here, with the exception of yourself or your linear family, you can more or less invest in whatever you want. That's kind of a broad rule for all sort of self-directed accounts. Just to jump in real quick, it's still tax deferred, right? You're not taking it out of your 401k, you're rolling it over into a new IRA or something like that. So it's still tax deferred. You're not losing the tax status. Absolutely. It's another stop on the train. But let's take that question the other way a little bit. I'm sure some folks read the headlines, Peter Thiel of the FinTech fame out on the West Coast. He received headlines because he chose to do a Roth conversion. What is that? In layman's terms, if you want to give the IRS your money today versus tomorrow, they'll actually take it today. Now, if you feel that whatever your view of the future may be, but particularly if you have confidence in yourself, I think, 
what you may invest in, such as real estate, which has been great you know, for multiple decades now, you can do what's called a Roth conversion. So basically pay taxes on, I like to call it a little C today and not the big forest in the future. Another type of product is the solo 401k. What I love, so for all of our realtor friends, anybody that's 1099, either naturally or by choice, or husband, wife, team without W-2 employees, this is much more powerful of the two products. And I asked a moment ago, Jim, once again, not only from contributions where you're not limited to the call the six or 7,000 in IRA or the 19 or 20,000 if you're in a day job of your 401k, this is actually in the high 50s and it's you know roughly 63, 64,000 if you're over 50 years old. Extremely powerful, especially if you have a good ongoing cash flowing business that once again, you or you and your spouse are self-employed. You can also borrow against it up to $50,000. So as long as you pay yourself back over five years, what I love about it is I can have two separate checking accounts, one for pre-tax and one for post-tax, as we talked about, versus in the self-directed IRA world, you would need two unique accounts, one for pre-tax traditional, one for post-tax Roth. If I have a 401k and it's just an old 401k, it's just sitting with the old company I used to work for, or maybe I rolled it over and my financial advisor is managing it, but obviously it's all invested in the market. What do I do with that? Am I rolling that into a self-directed checkbook IRA? Am I rolling that into a self-directed IRA with a custodian? Am I rolling that into a self-directed solo 401k, an EQRP? I mean, what, what am I doing here? All else equal, if you have qualified self-employed income, which the very non-technical term the government likes to say is doing stuff, meaning you're a one-man consultancy, a husband-wife team, you drive Uber a little bit on the weekends, guess what? you qualify to open a solo 401k, which vis-a-vis the self-directed IRA is a much more powerful account. I know you mentioned the acronym EQRP, and there's a few others, the individual solo 401k. In my view, and we've talked to other legal beagles on this, they're effectively the same product. It's a checkbook control by default. There's no custodian involved. You're effectively the manager of your trust, of your shadow trust. You manage it. Once again, the rules, no life insurance, no collectibles, not yourself or your linear family, probably have to stay away from cannabis still at the moment. Everything else in the world is in play. Secondly, in the IRA land, self-directed IRA, you know, I know there's a big shop out of Ohio. I won't mention specific names for better or worse, but there's a lot of the older custodian, I'd say more tenured, more legacy out there. And it's a little heavier on the paperwork. The transactions don't move up quickly. Generally, they are not checkbook control. Let's pause here. What's checkbook control? As it sounds, you have access to your money 24-7 to invest in what you want, when you want. You do not have that with a custodial self-directed IRA. Now, with the likes of a rocket dollar, in full disclosure, I, uh, an advisor, an investor, and spent time with rocket dollar. Alto's another, I'll call them new kid on the block. The IRA product is checkbook control. How is this done? It's an IRA LLC model. And just to preface, this is fully, fully, fully legal. A few months back, somebody took liberties with uh, not even a headline, a footnote to imply that it may not be. It's still fine. But what it is here is that there is a custodian. Once again, an IRA legally you need a custodian in the background. But the IRA is saying this LLC entity is a good asset. And this is, in their eyes, the sole asset that goes in. And then you as the investor have the checkbook control, very similar to a solo 401k. So to go full circle on the offering, once again, with my ties to Rocket Dollar, and I would share our rocketdollar.com slash learn is an amazing knowledge base to learn everything that we're talking about today. This gives you the opportunity, and I say this in a very specific order, to have a checkbook control self-directed account. And thereafter, you make the decision if it's the solo 401k or if it's a self-directed IRA. 
you said that you have to have uh, some business income to do the uh, the the solo four hundred one k. If I'm a passive investor generating cash flow, investing through my LLC, does that qualify? Unfortunately, no. Passive income, collecting a rent check, day trading. Once again, the government does not consider this, I like to say, quote unquote, doing stuff. The true rule of law is the intention to consult. So I know some folks are thinking, hey, I'm probably going to get out of my W-2 this year. I really like the solo. Okay, I'm going to stand something up or I'm going to be a consultant right now. Boy, it's always tough to get that first client, but I'm really pushing for this. And this is going to be your intention either as your main business practice or a solid part-time. In good faith, you can then open the solo 401k. Talk about UDFI and UBIT. What do those mean I know it has something to do with leverage inside your investment. I have heard that you might be exposed to it in a self-directed IRA, but you might not be in a self-directed 401k. So talk about that a little bit. I'll preface, because I I know all of us here on the call listening are passive investors. I'll I'll share that any deal that I have looked at for UBIT UDFI, regardless if it's my solo 401k, and I do have an old Roth self-directed IRA, it has not impacted my judgment to invest in a deal or not. And also, you know, even if there is a hit of tax, which, and I go to a weekly real estate meetup, frankly, this has never come up where somebody says, boy, I really got burned or did not expect, or I had a notable hit on my taxes. So once again, I think this is more of a headline that certain folks push out there. Once again, I refer folks to the knowledge base because uh, we can probably talk about this like legal beagle for 20 minutes and, you know, we boring people folks here, but just high level UDFI is unrelated debt finance income. And what is this is when an SDIRA obtains leverage from debt with a non-recourse loan. I'll just pause here and say the solo 401k is exempt from UDFI. So there's also UBIT2. But as I said, I, I think this is, I know some, a lot of folks are a bit more visual and without going into a deeper sort of analysis here, you know, I'll once again, refer folks back to, and, you know, final thing not to confuse, but since we're on the topic, also realize there's also uh, UBIT and UBTI. And I'll just share the headline. So UBIT is unrelated business income tax. And this is the tax itself that's applied by the government on this type of income. And then UBTI is actually the income itself that's subject to taxation. So uh, <laughs> I know we don't have charts or anything else on here, but I, once again, just to read it, it's a passive income. And I've been in and out of, I've probably written 40 checks. I've probably been in and out of 20 plus deals already myself. It's never come up to consideration. I think you have three buckets. One is your piggy bank checking account, your liquid account. And there's, for more savvy or tenured investors on the call, there's different things with depreciation, et cetera, capital gains, potentially capital losses, not saying you want them in real estate, but offsetting that you think about in your liquid account. Secondly is going to be your pre-tax traditional. Once again, you want this to grow as much as possible. And then ideally you want to take it out when you're at the lowest tax percentage or portion of your life. And then separately, it's the Roth IRA that you truly want to grow like a rocket ship because you already pay taxes on day one. So I, I think just thinking in terms of these two or maybe three buckets and saying, is this good for my personal liquidity or is this good for my long-term when I either have to pull out a big bucket of money in 20, 30 years and pay taxes on it, or ideally even a bigger bucket of money that I don't have to pay taxes on. Okay. So when I'm looking at a, you know, whether I'm going to do an investment in my solo 401k, or I'm going to do it out of my regular just bank account, I look at the tax advantages, right? And if it's tax advantage real estate, I usually prefer that not to be in the self-directed qualified account because then you don't get those tax advantages because you already have tax advantages. So what kind of assets would you put in your IRA? Would you first 
try to do lending that doesn't have tax advantages anyways? Or do you still do tax advantage investing in your IRA just because that you're still going to get the returns? Yeah. I mean, the nice thing, I always look at the return, the nominal sort of return you get, and then you start in, including taxes. And I would always preface to say is you never want to put yourself in a liquidity position where you're borrowing, you know, or maxing out your credit card because you put passive income in a deal, especially if your retirement sitting in some bond fund. Like, no, please never do this. And I think that's the spirit of accreditation. Why folks, and I do suggest all sponsors should have a healthy conversation. Full disclosure, I'm licensed under BV Capital and we take this, you know, it's a questionnaire. It's more conversational, but we take it very seriously because we don't want somebody getting in a situation where um, it's unhealthy for them and their family. So with that said, in terms of which bucket of money per se, I, I always think of things as, is it a K-1? Is it a 1099? For example, my buddy who I referenced previously flips houses. He's never used a bank. He uses personal folks, but it's a 1099. What does that mean? Well, let's say he pays 8%. It's like if I had an 8% checking account, I'm going to pay on that. So let's say if I also had separately somebody that strictly does, you know, I'm getting a, it's a pref only deal, real estate, and it's paying 8%, but you're getting a K1. Let's say if I had 100K in each bucket, all else equal, I would want the latter, the one that's coming out of the K1 to come for me personally. And then once again, the one with the 1099, I want coming from my self-directed IRA or solo 401k because, you know, you're getting that nominal return, but you're not paying the taxes on it. That's well said because you can figure out the buckets by what kind of tax report you're getting. So that's great. One last question on the IRA qualified account thing, and this is the big one, is if you're a real estate investor, why don't you just cash out your 401k or your IRA and you're going to pay the taxes anyways, right? So the, the question is, do you think taxes are going to be higher now or later, right? So that's one part of it. The other part is the penalty. The penalty is only 10%. I'm pretty confident I can make up that 10% because I'm once I take it out and I start investing in real estate, I'm probably never going to pay tax again. To me, it would look like just cash it out, invest it in real estate, and you'll end up in a better spot. Now, I say that, and I haven't done it. <laughs> That's the question, right? One, Chad Ackerman is one of the founders of Left Field Investors, and, and he did that. And the courage was was awesome, and it's working out for him so far. But why shouldn't we do that, or why should we? The should, and I think Chad's story is great. I think folks, and I know other folks here in Austin, Texas, you know, as they say, the new land of plenty. Some folks, maybe that didn't even finish college or that in their early 20s, you know, did that even with 50,000 in their 401k. And it's been a very wise move. Now, once again, I feel we on this call are passive investors. A lot of us are doing other stuff. I do think in terms of diligence, concentration, and sure, there might be a bit of luck of it. If real estate and of investing in asset management, meaning real estate asset management, is not all part of your day-to-day, I don't know if I would say, well, let me just pull out of my retirement because I feel that I'm smarter than folks. A great personal example I'll give, and I always love to share, you know, what's the worst thing you did or what mistake can you teach me? Uh, When we were pregnant, having baby bliss, it was a beautiful, sunny January day in Austin, Texas. And this house almost looked finished. And a good friend, very trusted, conservative, financially conservative CPA said, talk to this person, do a three-month hard money loan. I'm like, wow, this is easy money. My son will be born, you know, mazel tov, whatever you want, it'll be great. Fast forward three months, I got a baby, but I don't have my money back. But, you know, I'm still in baby bliss. We do another three months and then it's like, oh boy, this ain't looking too good. And then I had to learn the laws of uh, Texas. You know, things aren't always what they seem. Long story short, I was, after losing, you know, a few bits of uh, remaining hair that I have, 
I got 70 cents on the dollar, but boy, was this a real world MBA. Why do I share that? I wasn't, even now, I don't know if I would fully trust myself to pull all this money out in case I was a GP in these deals. So I do think it's a factor of your time. If you're not fully in this, I would caution against this. Secondly, there is some benefit by having IRA money. Why do I say that? Is you, once again, cannot invest in your personal residence, in a beach house where grandma goes to, you know, in your kid's prop tech startup, for example. And then selfishly, as you're trying to get to know other folks you may want to invest or frankly GP partner with, it helps having this retirement money. A lot of us jokingly, and Jim, I'm sure we saw this in California. I mean, I looked around and there's four or five people I've invested with. Why? Two reasons. One, people say like and trust. Well, we can have 100 likes on LinkedIn or Facebook after this, but trust is going to be when money moves, when something transacts. That's part of it. And also, in many respects, a check should move before you think who I may want a GP with otherwise. So the IRA, I think, gives you some of that buffer knowing you can't touch it for, let's assume you're 40 years old, another 20 years out. And once again, worst case, and I hate saying a worst case, but in the IRA, if you lose the money, well, it's pre-tax money anyways. Yes, you're not getting a write-off, but you're not then paying it on the outside. I hate to always share, let's talk about worst case scenarios, but I think it's decent to bring up. Whereas I think in your personal life, if you cash out, Today, you have your 10% penalty and you're paying taxes on it. So a lot of folks might say, well, I had a pretty good year working my W-2. I made 100K. I'm going to take out 250. Well, there's 25K. Guess what? Your AGI just went up to 350. Yeah. You got to kind of consider all that, especially if you're going to leave your W-2 and assume you have a a big bucket of money to do something with. Because your final point I'll make on this, then you're losing the leverage of having a W-2. So I'm just playing out a few personas and scenarios I know that folks have done for better or worse. But ultimately, I think it's I like to have a little bit of the optionality to get to know folks with my money. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. I haven't had the courage to uh, take all mine out. I did take a little COVID withdrawal, but that was it. So I would like to completely pivot here because I know that you've talked to over 500 sponsors in 18 months. So why, what did you learn and where did you find 500 <laughs> sponsors? I, I, this, is, this is great. I'd love to dig into that a little bit. Yeah. In some ways, it's pretty easy. One, I think it's just, it depends how you're wired. So for my introverts out there, this is a little bit of a tougher putt, but the benefit of being here in Austin, Texas, I, once again, I was already a passive investor. I learned of Rocket Dollar, actually the concept of Rocket Dollar, which is once again, a checkbook control, self-directed provider. I was an advisor and investor before the company was even incorporated, decided to commit 18 months as employee number one, as we came out of the womb. For reference, Henry Yoshida, our founder, Goldman Sachs bought his previous company 18 months in. So kind of had that in the back of my mind. At the same time, I mean, out of the gate, I visited sponsors that would sit around the circle at a family office or call it larger pension show. And I realized, well, that didn't super sync with self-directed IRAs. Yes, maybe some individuals and some of the sponsors saw the light, maybe for their smaller checks and their sidecar funds. But 
where the meat really came in. And I'm sure all these names in no particular order, the likes of uh, Joe Fairless, uh, Michael Blanc, uh, Jake and Gino, Adam Adams out in Denver that's done a podcast shift right now. Uh, Hunter Thompson most recently. I was a road warrior. Other, I'd say, groups too that might be more of a lending, like Jurassi that does a great job on the West Coast. So from here, you know, that's when I was trying to check off for 500, but I met with folks, a quick handshake, but that's frankly not enough for me. I want to get to know you more. So this was a follow-up call. Once again, I probably slept, uh, you know, as much as our newborn at the time and such. That is how I did it. But there was a lot of thought to it too. We had a So this became the advent of our knowledge base. The benefit also concurrently, I spoke to probably 500 folks either open a solo 401k or were considering it. And this became the scratch pad for what became an award-winning knowledge base that shares education out in the world. And we also learned, Brian Briscoe is a great example from Four Oaks. I know Brian, TGIF, I mean, it's tough to say, you know, meeting the Marine in diapers per se, but they were very green when we got the, the benefit of knowing him and, you know, him and his partners. This is just a great example of folks that we've saw and I've continued to engage with. Some I've invested with, others I've had the benefit to uh, be on their webinars and such. So I've got to know, I'd say a very strong, you know, one to 200 And then for one reason or another, I've invested probably with 10 to 20 relatively smaller checks, of course, because purposely I'm diversifying. But that's the how. What I learned is, you know, to bet on, what's it, bet on the horse, not or bet on the jockey, not on the horse. Some lessons learned. I think it's very difficult when there's just one partner, one GP, especially if somebody's coming up de novo out of the gate. I think you need a few partners there. I, th- Frankly, wherever I've lost money or had the most sleepless nights, it's been when it's been a one-man shop out of the gate or somebody without support. That was a pretty good sort of telling sign. I think secondly, I think looking at the terms, there's some folks now that I may not invest with because even somebody out there, I thought this was a little bit slimy, but much like we hear 80, 20, 70, 30, which is kind of the natural progression as you go through a waterfall, they were actually taking the higher number. And I think they're trying to pull a fast one off somebody. Not many folks, but like anything, when there's a quantity out there, you really have to look through the quality. And then final point I will share, kind of going full circle on our conversation for anybody that's also a sponsor or considering it, those that have shared the simple one sentence, did you know you can use your retirement dollars to invest in my next deal, tend to get 10 to 20% of the raise done. So I joke, you get to take Friday off because you're done. The best example here is for my Texans, I'll you know, refer to a Texan company. Let's say you have a buddy that worked for Dell, retired, but has three kids at SMU, Rice, et cetera. He or she is not liquid, but the, they love your deal. They want to get engaged. They see that, hey, you know, you took out your 401k, you started buying real estate. I really want to get involved. Really excited with you now. Oh, but I have three kids in college. But you have that million dollar 401k from Dell. Oh, great. I can tap into it. So sponsors that have on a regular basis share this message and exuded this, once again, 10 to 20% on a very, very consistent basis. And I felt there was certain personas and avatars and such that went behind this that obviously we would engage more. We invited to our podcast. We A webinar takes us a fair amount of time to stand up, did unique webinars with them, shared a stage, you know, multiple stages across. Yeah, I mean, I put myself out there very humbly with the message is just, you know, did you know? Do you know? You can use it. And let's do it. Interesting. Now, I'd like to also talk a, a little bit about what you're currently doing, which I think you said was industrial triple net deals. You called it a bond wrapped in real estate. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, it's better than bacon, you know, bacon wrapped dates or whatever they call it down here in Texas. No, so much like self-storage was off headlines till recently. I've been a fan of storage. I've been an investor. I've raised money for storage before. I think industrial, it's funny when you look at the top five list, industrial is there. It's just not the one you talk about. And then also conceptually, folks can think of a hotel hospitality, multifamily. It's where I lived out of school, where I rented, et cetera. Residential, of course. Industrial is, I like to say, everything else, but it's a really big everything else. It is where all your goods, frankly, are made, where they're moved to, where the last mile is. A great example of a, a property I know of is it's a Loomis. It's like a big Fort Knox on the El Paso border. It's Department of Defense certified. It's a whole lot of metal with money inside. That's pretty cool. That's under the industrial sort of umbrella. And then triple net basically means that the tenant is paying for taxes, insurance, maintenance. They're paying for everything, which a fun fact here for folks that rent implied within your rent, you're probably actually doing that, or at least the taxes. I know folks say, I'm renting, I'm not buying, or I'm never going to buy. Well, you are paying the taxes. Complete side note. What I like about industrial is many, once again, a strong tenant, it's going to be mission critical. This location, this building, what do I mean by that? So let's pick on our California friends. A a little California tech startup is going to move from California to Austin. They can do that. Wherever they're at, not a big deal. Let's say you have 100 plus employees, six plus buildings. You make a patented widget. You personally, meaning you, the tenant, put in X million dollars into this space. You're probably not going to pick up and go anywhere, especially when you're locked into a 15-year contract with rents every five years baked in. So I share all that just contextually that these are properties very less likely to go anywhere. And once again, let's talk about worst case scenario. Stuff really hits the fan. These properties can either pay their bondholders or they can pay rent to make their widget to make more revenue. Well, they're going to do the latter, which means you know if you're the owner of the building, they're going to pay you first. So this is what industrialism, we talked about the risk side. Now let's talk about the return side of it. The nice thing, once again, this cash flow is like a bond because, well, it's a rent. It's a single tenant. It's not like a multifamily or even a self-storage or especially a hospitality. I mean, hey, we got one tenant. They're going to pay us this much per square foot or per building. All right. It's in some ways relatively easily to cash flow that out. And then a final point I'll share, particularly when you have this in a portfolio, like anything, wow. I mean, it's the equivalent of having, call it, you know, 10 AA, AAA properties here. Even if one backs out the space, they probably probably put so much into it that somebody would want to get in to release it. Interesting. And so like I'm a passive investor, right? You, you do passive investing as well. How do we evaluate that kind of deal, right? I, I know how to look at multifamily. And and like you said, I've lived in apartments. I've lived in a house. I've used a self-storage. I don't think I've ever been to an industrial facility, right? Or And if I did, I certainly didn't know what I was doing there. So how do I evaluate the deal and make sure it's a good investment for me? First and foremost, once again, the sponsor, the track record, who actually operates the property too. I think what you're going to see, much like you're starting to see now in self-storage, in the next few years, folks are going to claim it's their deal. No, they're probably just raising capital. So be very cautious. Ask who the operator is behind it. I know that's kind of rule of thumb for every asset class, but especially here, because it's not common knowledge, I think. I think secondly is... You do have to look at the business more. Obviously, multifamily is just housing. Hotel is not a factor of Hilton Marriott per se. It's more a factor of pandemic, natural disaster, et cetera. Whereas in industrial, I think it's two things. And first and foremost, it's going to be on the tenant side. And a lot of these are either publicly traded or have some very, I'd say, public audited financials out there. You know, the companies we look at, BV Capital, a good number are multi-billion dollar market cap companies. Okay, you get a good idea of what's going on. And once again, my analogy, paying rent, paying bondholders, 
their equity, they're going to take care of themselves to make more widgets, more revenue first. That's one way I'd say to look at it. The secondly is just like anything, where it is. I mean, I grew up in Scranton, PA, Jim, you're up north, especially here in Texas. It's kind of an easy sort of answer, but we have Mexico. Politics side, it ain't going anywhere. We have military. Once again, politics sides ain't going anywhere. We have a lot of people moving here, which means more stuff, more goods made. It's a very extremely business-friendly state. So all these factors combine for the making and moving of goods. And we have the Gulf, of course, with the ports. These are some pretty good, I'd say, macro check marks. Much like I'd say, hey, Scranton, PA, where I grew up. We have I-81. We have the Turnpike. We got New York, we got New England. I would also say this is a good place for industrial just because of location close to MSAs. There's different ways to kind of look at that from your diligence. But first and foremost, I think it's actually, this is more looking at the tenant. So we've been talking this whole time, a lot of our conversation has been about different ways to invest in real estate and why real estate's so great. So why are these companies selling their real estate? They're not selling. I mean, once again, and I love your analogy with you know, Chad before, it's like, hey, should you take everything out of your 401k and just do it yourself. And this is your retirement, obviously. Same deal. Folks are concentrated on making a widget for the oil and gas space. They're quasi tied into the government. They're a showroom for people in the trades and the construction space. They're not real estate folks. And a lot of them are not franchised. So it's not like a McDonald's, which I thought was a great movie. It's actually real estate play. It's not a burger play. I think folks are accepting, could they buy the building? Sure. Yeah, probably. Just once again, I'm sure they're pretty savvy CPAs too, the larger the company. It makes sense, frankly, to not be a real estate owner. Over time, if we become a hyperinflationary economy, may it make sense to own? Sure. Definitely. It could. But now, vis-a-vis, their prices would probably go up with everything, you know, just throw some zeros at the end of everything. In the near term, no, I don't think they want to worry about that. Plus, it gives optionality and come renewal time or negotiation time, there's always that potential to move, which I think is pretty powerful versus here's where we are for the long term. So once again, you know, back of the paper napkin, it may be better for them to own, but I think just their head share and managing it, frankly, a lot of companies, they're focused on their primary business. That makes sense. So when you do these deals, are the properties... Because you said they don't sell the property, the owner doesn't. So are these new properties that you buy and then you find a tenant to move into? Or are these already existing industrial buildings where the tenant owns it and they sell it to you and lease it back? It's more towards the latter that we may buy from an, an existing industrial owner where company XYZ is the tenant and will probably remain the tenant is now there could be spec. That's not something we purposely focus on. A lot of times with these industrials, because there's a fair amount of built to suit one way or the other, is that you are coming armed with a company with a strong track record of audited financials, possibly publicly traded or the equivalent thereof, that says, yeah, we need a building here. We're building our our campus, not just headquarters, but our campus here. So we're building with them in mind. And you know, if there's certain things on the new build to commit to or when it's being re the tenant is going to put in for that. So I view it more as a, once again, going that perception might be, well, why don't the companies own the building themselves? Do they own it and then sell it back? No, not as much. This They just think of them very much as the tenant. This is just going from one real estate shop to another. And then eventually, for example, we have a portfolio, we own six, probably get up to 12-ish by the end of the year. Fast forward four years, we will sell this to a small REIT. We're already getting people on the door and said, boy, I want Texas, I want industrial 
I have a nine figure check. Can I buy it from you today? You know, I'd like to say yes, but we're going we're gonna to honor our investors and, you know, continue to cash flow monthly to them. You talked about the exit. That makes sense. What's the upside potential or, you know, the pro forma? What are these typically? Is it similar to multifamily homes? You hold it five years, you sell it. That I would say is similar. Like once again, at any time you can do a, you can do a quick sort of flip, especially now. I, I think like anything, if you don't have to redeploy the money, now's a great time. If this is your retirement, bang out, get out. It's life's great. It redeploys a challenge because then you're then you're a fellow buyer from that standpoint. You know, multifamily, you see a lot more quarterly distributions because I think you have to say not even just COVID, but oh, there might be a little pause. Something can happen where I might have to hold back or lower the pref a little bit. Whereas I said this is this is like you and I, you know, paying our office rent for those with you know paying your rent per se, paying your mortgage. Industrial is kind of the same way. So in turn, you can pay your investors, and it's in some ways pretty predictable. You know, obviously, sale price will be hope to be a little bit higher. It's a pretty predictable sort of pro forma. That's great. You know, we covered a lot of uh, a lot of different things here, and I appreciate it. The last question I ask on the podcast is, what's a great podcast that you listen to? You know, real estate related, business or or otherwise, and you can mention more than one if you're really into podcasts. Wow. So try not to play favorites with uh, <laughs> the other ones that I'm going for here. But I always think it's the person too that you can continue. And we had a great discussion in California. We're going to continue this conversation. Ben Kogut with HGH Investments here in Austin with me, a true gentleman and a scholar. I think if you have the opportunity to meet Ben, please do. Please try to get on his podcast. It's high in demand, but also to have a conversation. He's all just tremendously kind and a servant leadership spirit. But Tremendous knowledge was an Acton MBA, which is our entrepreneurial MBA down here, in addition to the real estate stuff. So kind of his DNA, I think, is very sort of unique. Outside of this, Master of Scale, Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn. I like to joke begrudgingly that I thought of LinkedIn. I'm a fellow Penn guy, and I even did it with my fraternity guys. You know, what grad school? Where are you living? What's your interest? I never put ones and zeros behind it. So kicking myself on that, but... A really good one with Anderson, you know, of Netscape fame. He talks about these amazing ideas. It might be the same idea every four years, kind of like the Olympics, but it might be the fifth iteration or, you know, hey, it finally hit in 2016. No fault to the founders or anything before, but I find these very uplifting. I think it's good decision points too here. Uh, And I love what you shared about Chad is like, hey, if we're going to go, you know, this is going to be my full livelihood, balls to the wall. Who are my mentors here? And you're getting great lessons. And a lot of these folks were in our shoes relatively small before they became name brand, but it's extremely tangible. So that's a good one. Awesome. Thanks for sharing those. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, LinkedIn is fantastic. And please share that you heard it. You know, Jim and Dan having a a great chat. I check it daily. I'm a LinkedIn content creator. So love to continue the conversation that way. Separately, I joke, if you can spell it, you can get it. D. Krizanowski, D-K-R-Y-Z-A-N-O-W-S-K-I. That will get you a a whopping $50 off of a, a Rocket Dollar account. You'll find the price and the service and everything to be fantastic. And before that, I always like to lead with education. So rocketdollar.com slash learn is a great place on the self-directed side. And then uh, bvcapitaltx.com will share you, you know, give you some insights into Texas commercial real estate. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was uh, jam-packed with information. I appreciate your time and thanks for being on the show. Awesome, brother. Take care. We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community. At Ashcroft, they focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential through their value-add funds. 
They are proud to announce their second fund. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind, to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with, acquiring quality multifamily assets and offering value-add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash left field. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash left field. That was a good conversation with Dan, and I'm uh, really just super proud I was able to pronounce his name correctly. I'm not going to try again because I had it all written out there. Some of the things that I enjoyed about chatting with him is the idea that, remember, you can use your retirement funds differently. It doesn't have to be a 401k. It doesn't have to be invested in stocks, mutual funds, bonds. There are other options out there. And we talk a lot about that in our community But I think it's important for people to recognize that if you have an old IRA or you separate from your employer, if you have these funds, you can use them for other things. You can use them for real estate. I also thought, interesting, you know, he didn't think UDFI was that big a deal. That's the part where you pay taxes on the part of the investment that uses leverage. So he hasn't had any issues with it. So that's a good thing. It's surprising. I didn't think that it would be a non-factor. But to be honest, I, I never had an issue with it either in my self-directed IRA, and I've now transferred that to an EQRP, and and maybe I didn't need to do that. So that's a question for, of course, your tax professional. I liked how he kind of divvied up the buckets when you're trying to make a decision. Do I invest with my qualified money, which is the IRA, self-directed IRA, or do I go to my bank account and cash in hand? And his deal was, you know, if you're getting a K-1 from the investment, first place you go is your bank account. And if you're getting a 1099, the first place you go is your IRA. And I think that's exactly right. That's a great way to kind of segregate those out and and know which bucket you're going into if you have cash in both places. And then when he was talking about sponsors, avoid a one-man shop. You know, I, I agree with that. We've talked a lot lately about there's more and more GPs, general partners on all these deals. And I don't want someone who's got 10 GPs on a deal. Well, that's true, but it's also true. I don't want somebody that just has one. I want someone that I know has people behind them, that has a backup, that has other people helping them out. It just makes sense. And if something happens to them, the other person jumps in. So that made complete sense to me. The only thing that didn't make sense out of this is is he, he mentioned something, I forget what, that was better than bacon. And that clearly is not the case because there is nothing better than bacon. Lastly, we're talking about industrial, triple net. I really like this asset class. It's becoming more popular. I think it's good for diversification because you get reliable cash flow. It's an asset that is backed by a major company. It's single tenant, yes, so that might be a little scary. But if you've vetted the company or the sponsor has vetted them so that they know they're solvent and going to stick around for a long time, they have a committed lease with a business, it just seems like a, a nice way to offset some of the other asset classes that we're into, the more residential stuff, dealing with people. Here, we're dealing more with businesses. So I like that. It's great talking to Dan. We're going to keep track of him, see how his stuff goes, and then look to the future. So that's it for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. 
If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.